0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Immigrantly. I am your host, Sadia Khan, and today's conversation revolves around something that I struggle with, which is boundaries. Not only the concept of boundaries or lack thereof in certain cultures, but more importantly setting boundaries. From boundaries in workplace to your personal relationships, both romantic and familial and beyond. Now, I would be the first to say that this notion and practice of setting boundaries was pretty alien to me growing up and is something I'm having to learn and remind myself about every day. The idea of defining our emotional and personal limits in relation to others as a way to protect our inner sense of peace and promote self-growth is one that I would call a more recent phenomenon, right? especially as we can see it developing into a point of conversation across the globe. Here, I want to highlight, however, that a lot of times when discussing relational boundaries, the conversation is very Western focused and often doesn't account for the different dynamics you will find in an immigrant household, nor does it recognize the values that have been instilled in us from young age. Today I am so lucky to be joined by someone who will hopefully help us, you and me, navigate these cultural ties and with luck by the end of this session, I and all of our dear listeners will have a better idea of how to approach these difficult, complicated, messy conversations. Isra Nase is a psychotherapist and mental health educator. She is the founder of Well.guide, a digital mental wellness brand, on Instagram. Situated at the cross-section of technology and mental health care, Isra specializes in applying her knowledge of and experience with intersectional identities to improve the framing and delivery of mental healthcare to BIPOC individuals. So let's get started. Isra I am so thrilled to have you on my show and you and I were discussing this before the show that we had an Instagram live Mm -hmm. and you reminded me it was two years ago.
1: Yeah. At the beginning of the pandemic, I think. It has been wild,
0: honestly. And you know what? I was thinking the other day, I was like, you know, why not have Isra on my podcast? Because she is so awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And I love your reels. I I think the kind of work that you do Mm -hmm. resonates with somebody like me who's an immigrant who grew up in a different culture and probably would resonate with my daughters as well, who are teenagers and who are navigating two cultures. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're doing an amazing job. But today, we are going to talk about something very specific, which is setting boundaries. (laughs) Uh, For somebody like me, I have struggled with it throughout. And to be honest, I come from a culture where we value things like sacrifice and honor and loyalty at all costs and setting boundaries seems selfish at best, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, I think there are situations where it would be wise to set boundaries. Yeah. But before we deconstruct all of that, let's talk about the term. Yes. Set a boundary. Yeah. To me it sounds very harsh. Yeah. It sounds very alienating. So can you break it down for us
1: what it really means and can we set boundaries kindly? Oh my gosh, yes. So first of all, I think this is a very relevant topic for almost everyone. So you said that you have teenage daughters and I'm sure you see it play out yeah. as a mom and your own learnings and your own cultural background is probably showing up. But you're also trying to be mindful of the new learnings that you're having and how you could infuse that. So there's a couple of things that I want to maybe level set for this conversation for listeners so that we're all kind of all on the same page. So the first thing is when we talk about boundaries right now, we are talking about the Western concept of boundaries. Very important to think of that distinction because psychology as a field is a very white male-dominated research industry. All of the theories that we build most of what we know now are based on heteronormative values Hmm. in the Eurocentric worldview. So that's where all of this is happening. That being said, I do think that the way we conceptualize boundaries is still applicable to non-European, non-Western cultures and communities. And as a therapist who is South Asian, my job is to see how we can reshape or reframe some of those foundational concepts so that they can be successfully applied into the South Asian context, Asian context, or the collectivist cultures. So the way I think of boundaries is it's kind of like your skin. Your skin is there to protect what's inside of your body. And it's not necessarily othering or alienating because people can still touch your skin and you can get love and comfort through physical touch. But it's still there to protect your insides.
0: I love the analogy. I can even visualize Mm -hmm. what you're saying. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad You just set the stage in the beginning that it is a Western construct, and it's important to recognize Mm -hmm. that—not that it doesn't apply to other cultures, but it's pretty much centered in Western values, and therefore it becomes alienating for people who do not come from those cultures. Mm -hmm. Very few people would say that, Isra. So (laughs) I am really
1: glad that you said that. Yeah, I mean, because you know, you said I feel like it's very alienating, Mm. or when I talk to other friends, family members, clients, whoever, they think setting boundaries is rude or it's harsh. And usually those are the people from collectivist culture. So immediately what happens is there's a shame that why can't I set boundaries? Why do I think boundaries are mean? But knowing the context of how you were raised and what your culture is helps you not let that shame paralyze you from doing something. And I think the other thing I'll say before we dive deeper is we tend to think that culture is a state- Able non changing Hmm. entity, but that's not true. Our culture is a collection of stories and practices that reflect the time we live in. Absolutely. So while 150 years ago, South Asian culture was a lot of intergenerational families, that was a product of that time. Hmm. We saw it change in the 80s and the 90s, and now you don't really see it that much anymore. Yeah. Right? And so the culture has shifted. So this idea that our culture doesn't have space for boundaries is also something we can transform.
0: I like that. And I want to expand this conversation a bit as you said culture is evolving and so is the concept of setting boundaries Mm -hmm. and I want to go back to how people who grow up in individualistic cultures paint a picture that the decision was clear all along right Mm -hmm. just build a fence around Mm -hmm. your happiness Mm -hmm. and that's it you know you're done it's clear it's concise Mm -hmm. to me it's messy yeah It's ever-evolving. It's changing. Mm -hmm. For me, how I set boundaries, what boundaries do I set with whom matches Mm -hmm. and it changes. The kind Mm -hmm. of boundaries that I will set with my parents who I believe are entitled to a lot more privileges because of Mm -hmm. their engagement in my life versus boundaries with somebody who's not as engaged in my life. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that. Yeah. In what ways can people, especially from collectivist societies or cultures, I just want to focus on that, reconcile between maintaining and nurturing strong sense of belonging, because that's what we are looking for. That's mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. the center of collectivist cultures and yet have those certain limitations. How would you guide somebody from collectivist societies to
1: partake in the process of setting boundaries? Well, the first thing is to really understand what a healthy boundary is. Hmm. Because so many of us, especially here in the diaspora or immigrants, we are raised in home environments where we think the only way to set a boundary is to be really rigid, is to push back, is to shut the door, right? And that's not necessarily a healthy boundary, right? A boundary and an ultimatum are different things. So the first thing I would do is if I'm working with someone is to help identify what their messages about boundaries are Hmm. and how can we transform them to the healthier version. So a boundary is not about the other person's behavior. A boundary is about how will I act if you behave in this way? What Mm. will I tolerate when you are doing something? So it's not, don't do this. It's when you do this, I have no other choice but to do that. So Mm. you're kind of letting people know how much you're gonna tolerate. That's the first thing. So here's a follow-up question to this.
0: I am a huge believer in respect So when I tell my kids, you have to respect me, Mm -hmm. am I setting a boundary of how you can communicate with me? Do you think that is boundary
1: setting? I think how you phrase it matters. You saying, if you talk to me like this, I can't continue this conversation. When Mm. you talk to me like this, we can't have this discussion. So whether they want to go on a sleepover or whatever it is they want, like we can't have this discussion until Mm. you speak to me with respect. Now, in a parent dynamic, I think it's also really important to model the boundary that you are setting. And I would even say beyond parents, right, even in a partnership. If you are setting the boundary of respectable communication in the relationship with your children, you have to participate in that yourself. Oh, that's tough. That's, that's <laughs> tough. That's tough because like there's a power differential, right? Right. But if you want to teach your children healthy boundaries, you absolutely have to model it yourself because then when they get into the same position as you, like when they become parents, they will wrongfully believe that they can do whatever they want, but their kids have to listen to them. If you model that behavior as a parent, Very hard. I don't have children. It's all theoretical. (laughs) But even in, like, let's say a relationship with your partner, Hmm. if you tell your partner, if you raise your voice at me, I can't have this conversation, that kind of means you can't do that either, right? Like, so Hmm. your boundaries are a reflection of your values. They're not just random things you make up. It's what are you willing to accept and tolerate. And they are flexible. They change with changing circumstances. And they are a collaboration, A healthy boundary is a collaboration. You have to discuss it with the person. But of course, you have these outlier situations where perhaps the parent is too dominating. It's not a healthy relationship. Hmm. So when those situations happen, you have to become creative about how you set a boundary. And you might not be able to express it, but you internally change your boundaries to protect yourself from that person's verbal abuse or Hmm. overpowering your decision making or something like that.
0: In terms of having that conversation with somebody about boundaries, when is the right time to have that conversation? I'll give you an example. If my husband and I get into an argument, Uh if I say something like, if you speak with me Uh in this tone, we cannot have this conversation anymore Uh while he's already emotional, Uh do you think it will resonate with him then or do I just walk away and then later have this conversation about what it means to have certain etiquettes
1: (laughs) so as to speak when
0: you're even engaging in an argument? or to have ground rules.
1: Yeah. So I think the rules are best discussed outside of the argument, whether prior at the beginning of your relationship or, you know, if you're going through a difficult time, as all relationships do, resetting the ground rules. Because in the heat of the moment, people are more likely to not be receptive. However, if you have discussed it in the heat of the moment, it's good to call back to it Ah. and say, hey, we talked about this. Let's take five. Let's just take a breather. Another good way in a heated discussion is instead of saying, if you do this, I'm going to do X or I can't do X, you can also share your own experience of their behavior. So you can say, when you raise your voice at me, I feel scared or I feel nervous or I'm feeling this emotional thing because of your behavior. Ah. Can you please stop? And that gives them a little more empathy towards you in that moment, right? So something really common for South Asian kids is their parents will open their mail. I don't know if you've ever heard of that, but growing up, I saw it a lot. And it's a pretty common thing because you live in the family together, dad picks up mail, they'll open your mail. And you can say like, I feel like you are disrespectful my privacy when you open my mail. We can talk about if you have any questions.
0: But Isra, this line of reasoning hard. doesn't work it's hard. with South Asian parents. Yeah. I can see myself mm-hmm. getting offended yeah. by something like that. Like if yeah. my daughter was to mm-hmm. say this violates my privacy mm-hmm. for a minute, yeah. I will pause and mm-hmm. be like, okay, well, what's
1: happening here? Why are you hiding from right. me? Right. So yeah. how do
0: I recalibrate yeah. to say It's okay. She is a teenager and Mm -hmm. she has right to her privacy. Mm -hmm. Why is it so difficult for South Asian
1: parents, me being
0: one, (laughs) to let go of that?
1: Well, first of all, I'll say that someone being offended at your boundary is not a sign that you're making the wrong one. They being offended is more a reflection of how they feel about this relationship. So if someone is offended, even as a parent, let's say you feel that offense and you react, it's good to make space for that offense. Because again, a boundary is not a statement, it's a conversation. Let's say she says, hey, don't open my mail, it makes me feel like a privacy violation and you're offended. The next step, in the boundary setting is saying, oh, I see you're offended. Let's talk about that. And of course, you're not talking like this with your, like, basic parents. <laughs> you're not like, oh, let's discuss this. <laughs> but in my experience, I say things like, okay, you are obviously upset. Okay, what about what I said just made you upset right now?
0: That's what I'll this say to my mom. This is your conversation with your mom. Yeah, oh, yeah, I just like a- about this
1: kind of stuff. It's like, I see you're upset. What about this is making you upset? And so then she'll tell me her own stuff and it's not always a pleasant conversation but it's really about letting them know that you can trust me if there was something i will let you know right so to come back to your question why is it so hard i have a couple of hypotheses i think immigrant parents or children of immigrants We are very fear-based in these countries that are not our home countries. We are afraid of the differences in culture. We are afraid that something might be happening to our kids that they're not telling us about. There's this gap in knowledge because you're not on social media the way they are, but you hear all of these stories. So there's just fear. And so it comes from a place of love.
0: You're right. And it does change. Now, for somebody like me, I am probably more on social media than my kids are because of my work. But you're right. It's preservation of one's own culture, Mm -hmm. even beyond that. Right. So for me... I want some of my culture to be reflected in my kids. And I've already reconciled with the idea that it will be part of who they are, not wholly who they are, right? That's really good. Yeah, which is fine, right? Because they are growing up in a different culture and it's okay. Yeah. But at the same time, as you said, it's this burden of carrying and preserving that culture, the expectation that comes from our parents Mm -hmm. and their generation, Mm -hmm. right? And the shame associated with leaving your country of origin and going somewhere else and settling, Mm -hmm. all of that plays into how we react to our kids' attitudes or our kids' actions. So it's a lot of our own baggage that we project onto them.
1: Yeah. How do we deal with it? (laughs) I was going to say, you're a very self-aware parent. I don't have children, right? So a lot of what I'm saying is just my own theoretical stuff.
0: You're the professional (laughs) here, so
1: why not, right? Uh, I think it's really important for parents to figure out which things are the most important to them. So someone recently asked me a question like, what's the number one advice you would give to South Asian parents who are raising their kids here? And I said to go to your own therapy first. Figure out your triggers, figure out your baggage, figure out what's the stuff you're still holding on to from your parents when it came to culture. And then realizing that these are three things that are the most important to me that I'm going to really is going to be permeated in my home, whether it's food, religion, whatever it is. And then you can think about the five things that you would love." or you're a kid to have, but you're going to try for it. Like maybe you go to cultural parties once a month, right, where they learn how to dance. And then you think of the things that you're going to let go of if they don't pick up. Like your own values have to be really important, and you have to be aware of them. Hmm. You can't just absorb whatever you were taught and not question it. I like that. Because then you'll be pushing for something that perhaps you don't even believe in, and then that creates so much conflict. I mean, I grew up here. My parents were immigrants. I'm an immigrant. And this cultural clash is huge. And now when I talk to my mom, she does say things like, I don't even know why I was doing that. I was just doing it because that's what we did before in Pakistan and Saudi Arabia.
0: But it's a learning curve for us as well. Oh my gosh, totally, yeah. And people don't realize that. Your kids don't realize. Even our kids don't realize that. They don't know that
1: this is the first time you're doing it. (laughs) Exactly. So I want
0: to expand this conversation. In fact, I want to circle back Mm -hmm. to the idea of this being a westernized concept because Mm -hmm. a lot of conflict stems from there, especially for parents from East Asian cultures, South Asian cultures, Mm -hmm. and their kids. I've also realized that a lot of times, given the concept is Western, people who grow up in individualistic societies or cultures present other cultures as toxic. So South Asian culture is toxic. East Asian culture is toxic. It becomes extremely difficult for kids who grew up here, like yourself, Mm -hmm. to reconcile between those cultures because then they start seeing co-dependency or collectivism as yeah. an outdated phenomenon. And there's a lot of guilt and shame associated with that feeling. Yeah. So how do people reorient themselves without having to reconsider every aspect of their identity as outdated. Mm-hmm. And this is specific to kids of immigrants okay. who are navigating yeah. two cultures.
1: Yeah. I think when you're in high school, like high school and under, predominantly you're living with your parents. Hmm. So a lot of this work comes from your home environment. And so as long as you're living with your parents and your high school, your brain is still developing. A lot of the onus of this question falls on the parents. I know it's pretty big. Yeah. Right. And I'll tell you why. Why? Because the home is the secure base where they understand their culture best. So having an environment at home where they can ask questions about the stuff they're hearing in school, like X person said that DCs are really toxic because they have no boundaries, like why would they say that, right? Having that space at home to say, I don't agree with this part of our culture, I don't agree with this part of our religion, talking to your kids about that gives them the confidence of being able to talk to others about it. The more they see that they're integrated, like they don't have to split and they don't have to be someone totally different outside and be someone totally different. different inside. When there's that split, then you think you have to choose. And so you naturally choose the easier path, which is the culture you're in, which is Western culture, right? Mm. So you'll see people just going in that direction. But if you can create an environment at home where your child does not feel like they have to choose, and that comes back to your values, which of the values are you willing to be a little flexible on? How can we meet our kid halfway? So for example, in Muslim culture, they don't really do a lot of mixed gender friendships, traditionally. I mean, now I very rarely see it, but I'll use that as an example. If you say to your daughter, you cannot have any male friends, you have completely cut them out. They're going to have male friends and you'll never hear about them. Yeah. Right? And then they'll have to choose. And then they'll be like, Oh, my parents are so backwards. I can't even talk to guys. You know, it's so interesting yeah. you
0: say this because... A lot of it is alien to me as well. Mm -hmm. My daughter having male friends is a given. You're not even questioning it. I don't even question that. So sometimes I'm like, you're right if parents were doing that. And I'm not saying it's wrong. For some parents, it's important. And I really respect their choices. Mm -hmm. But then the kind of conversation they'll have with their kids has to justify or at least explain why they Mm -hmm. don't want their daughter to hang out Mm -hmm. with male friends, Mm -hmm. right? Does that make sense?
1: It totally does. So there's one, how do you approach it? The second is, how can you meet your kid halfway? So fine, you're not allowed to go to the movies with guys, but maybe get to know some of the male friends that she is making in grade 9 or grade 10. Maybe invite their parents over so Mm. you get to know them. Like Your children always have to know that you are their safe fallback no matter what. And so with that kind of confidence, they grow to reconcile their identity Mm. as one instead of two. Then they're not going to be like, I'm white here and I'm brown there, right? Or I'm American in these environments, but in this place, I'm super brown. And that split, honestly, can sometimes impact your entire 20s. You see people going through their 20s, not able to figure out who they are. And there's some research done on immigrant children having delayed adolescence. So the identity markers that you figure out in late high school, early undergrad, a lot of immigrant kids are doing in their mid-20 onwards because that's when they leave the house to work in different cities and they gain this independence and they start to realize who do I want to be?
0: All of this sounds so interesting. And I feel like I am having my personal therapy session right (laughs) now, which I actually am, but... How many times do parents, kids, partners have these kinds of conversations? I feel the underlying assumption here is to have open communication, Mm -hmm. which doesn't happen even with friends. Let's shift gears a bit and talk about Mm friendships. right? Now, there are some friendships that are toxic. I've had some toxic friendships and my reaction was to just cut them off completely. I wouldn't do that with my family, having grown up in a South Asian culture, but I can easily do that with friends. Do you think that's the right approach? Do you think I should have had a conversation with the person who I cut off before I cut them off? So
1: I think the most natural reaction, because it's self-preservation, is to cut somebody off, right? That is the most natural reaction. So it's nothing to put yourself down over. I think Mm -hmm. we've all done it at one time in our lives. I think it's important to have conversations to help yourself grow. One of the reasons we ghost people or we cut them out is because we don't want to have a difficult conversation. It feels uncomfortable. We don't want to practice these communication skills. We just want to be like, yo, you don't exist for me, right? (laughs) So I think for your own self-growth, I always recommend people to have difficult conversations. Mm. Now, if you think that this person is going to really harm you psychologically, they're going to become abusive or verbally abusive, or if you have this convo with them, they're going to embark on like a social media slander Mm. campaign. Hey, there are people who do this stuff. Do that. If you think that person is like that, then you're totally fine to distance yourself. But if they're not... It's in your own benefit to have a conversation that says to them, however you want to phrase it, but the summary is, I don't think this friendship can continue. But a boundary-setting conversation is different from a friendship-ending conversation. You set boundaries because you want to continue a relationship. We set boundaries so we can be closer to the person. Because if we don't set boundaries and they violate it, we have resentment. We're angry. We don't feel comfortable around them. We might start censoring what we say. We can't be our true selves, right? And so that distances the relationship. But if I can say to you, hey, Sadia, when you do this, I feel really attacked. Can we change that? Why are you being like this? Mm -hmm. Let's find a solution. Now we're closer at the end of that.
0: I like that. There's something else that I wanted to talk to you about because I feel all of us at some level are scared of setting boundaries, whether we grew up in Eastern cultures or Western cultures. Mm -hmm. In Western cultures, it may be more acceptable, yet it's
1: not easy. No, it's not for anyone. mm
0: The way I see it, it is probably because sometimes we define a culture or sense of belonging to how we interact with people Mm -hmm. openly and freely, right? Mm -hmm. So setting boundary means that we are building some kind of fence around Mm -hmm. ourselves Mm -hmm. and That can be taxing. So do you think if we looked at different cultures holistically beyond just one aspect of family values or sense of belonging or community and looked at them through other dimensions as well, we would not feel as guilty setting boundaries?
1: The question implies that boundaries and belongings are antithetical to each other. Like, if we don't focus on the belonging aspect of a culture, will it be easier to set boundaries? Or
0: if we find other ways Mm -hmm. to belong— Or other ways to communicate with culture. Now, some people Mm -hmm. may set boundaries, but then they appreciate their culture's food or music or something else, right? Rather than
1: that sense of community that the culture embodies. So then you're like, I'm not jeopardizing my connection to the culture. I'll be honest, that's how I live. I have really healthy boundaries, but they're not alienating to the people around me. It was a journey, and it's so hard, even for somebody who knows all the theories. My husband and I are choosing not to have children, so you can only imagine the kind of (laughs) boundary-setting conversations we've had to have with our parents, like my mom especially. But in that process, I focused on the empathy that our culture values. It's not about, hey, I'm setting a boundary, so you're on that side. It's about, because I want to be connected to you help me understand. Like that's how I have tried to center my boundary setting conversations with my mom and my mother-in-law. And those are the two relationships that are probably the hardest to set boundaries with in any culture. But if you stay connected to the movies, the language, the literature, the food, the clothes, culture is so much more than just family. And I think the most important thing here is that you can still have family and you can still have belonging and you can still have connection and have healthy boundaries.
0: So let's play an interesting game. I'll give you different scenarios and tell me how do we (laughs) set boundaries or are these questions even acceptable? Okay. So the first question, and this is a follow-up to what you said. Yeah. Married couples, are Mm -hmm. you pregnant? Acceptable, not acceptable.
1: So I think if you're in public, you're in a public dinner, completely unacceptable. If you're in private and you're curious, you're concerned, you want to maybe open up a conversation to your friend who you think might be having health issues with fertility, in private, absolutely acceptable. But maybe one or two times, if they tell you the answer, accept it, support them, be there for them, and then move on. How much do you earn? Acceptable, unacceptable. Unacceptable. For everyone. I think in social settings. So that's the thing, right? Things are not so black and white. In the workplace, acceptable, because it helps you give salary parity. I found out that I was getting paid significantly less than one of my coworkers who was less qualified as I am, but they were a man. They had a lower position in the team, but was making more than me. So that question, acceptable in the workplace, because it gives you salary parity. Acceptable in friend groups, so we can help each other get uplifted. Unacceptable in rishta environments. What about parents? I think it depends on the relationship you have with your parent. I can't imagine
0: my parents not asking us this question or me not asking my kids.
1: Yeah, because your question is coming from, are you okay? Yeah. It's not like a, oh, what's... i brag about it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or like, you know, you get these rishtantis who will like Ah. lead with the guy's like salary, right? They'll be like, oh, he makes 120K, like unacceptable.
0: Your parents expecting you to call them every single
1: day. So this is going to be my controversial hot take. I think expecting it is unacceptable. And I'll tell you why. Because it puts a pressure on your kid where they might not organically want to do it anymore. They have come from a lifetime of you telling them things to do. Pick up your socks, eat your vegetables, do this, do this, do this, right? So if you're forcing them to do it, they're going to have some resentment because it's an encroachment of their time.
0: So this is so interesting because for me, when it comes to expectations of yeah. my parents, yeah. It's their rite of passage. I don't even have resentment towards them. Yeah. Yeah. And the reason I ask this question is because my parents live in Pakistan Mm -hmm. and my mother expects me to call her every day and Mm -hmm. not just call, like FaceTime her. Mm -hmm. She wants me to, Mm -hmm. you know, show her my face. Now, I have set some organic boundaries where she knows I won't call her every day. Her expectation is I should. Yeah. I don't oblige as much. Mm -hmm. Both my siblings call her every single day. And we have this implicit agreement that she will talk to me three times a week, which is acceptable for both of us. But I really respect her for having that expectation because it just makes me feel like she really loves me.
1: Yeah. And so what you described is you set a very healthy boundary with your mom and it didn't impact your relationship. You organically did it. It doesn't always have to be this formalized conversation, right? Like sometimes right. it just kind of happens and you speak to her three times a week. She knows that. You know it. You both still love each other. That's like the perfect scenario. I think the resentment piece definitely comes up for a lot of people and it doesn't mean that they don't respect or love their parents. It's just this pressure of like, oh, they're asking me to do one more thing. Hmm. And this is coming from a person who calls her mom like two to three times a day. <laughs> My mom lives in Toronto and I FaceTime her. Like I've already spoken to her four times today. Shout out to Ica's mom. (laughs) It's only noon, but the expectation creates pressure. If your child is too busy, they work a lot, they go out, and then you're saying, oh, you didn't call me today. There's place for conflict.
0: Lastly, now there are kids who come here for school, college, settle, but then their parents expect, and I'm using the word expect Mm -hmm. again, to send them money back. Yeah. And there are numerous reasons for that, right?
1: Acceptable, unacceptable, or situation dependent. I think that's deeply situation dependent. I think that the concept of setting monetary boundaries is very alien to South Asian. Like even me saying it, I can feel it in my body. But the reality is there are situations where you have to do it. And I think that is so personal, it's so situational. It depends on the relationship you had with your parents, right? Not all parents are equal. There are some parents who perhaps are not the best at parenting. What your relationship with your parent is like, colors how you set your boundaries. So if you were raised in a very emotionally abusive household and you escaped it, you came here to the States because you just wanted to get away, and now your parents are calling you and asking for money, how you feel about it is going to be very different than how if you were raised in a loving environment, the boundaries are very dependent on the parent-child relationship. If anyone who's listening is having this problem, I think if you can find a therapist who can help you through mm. it, so you can do it the right way, so you don't have regrets, so you don't have guilt, and you can kind of find a solution, I think would be my biggest recommendation.
0: Guys, we have such an amazing <laughs> therapist here. Contact her, reach out to her. We oh my share gosh. all her
1: information. It's a very hard thing, setting boundaries to parents. And I'll tell you, almost all of my clients when I was working in the summer, Last year, were South Asian. And almost all of them had this as a core issue, is how do I set healthy boundaries with my parents? And that means like, how do I get them to respect me as an adult? Right. How do I get them to respect my choices that I'm making right now? How do I sit in conflict and disagree with them? This is an issue I would say for second gen children, for sure, but also people like me who kind of split their time half-half. Huh. I think boundary setting is like a really important thing as you develop other relationships outside of your parents, like your partners, your friendships, your workplace, your understanding of boundaries will impact all of those relationships. Oh, wow! So really reflecting on your family the dynamics, the stuff that's not good that you want to leave behind and the new stuff you want to learn will help improve your romantic relationships and your friendships and at the workplace. I
0: want to sneak one more in. Yeah.
1: Parents asking their adult kids, yeah. about
0: whatever age, when are you getting married?
1: Yeah. Oh, gosh. Acceptable,
0: not acceptable. How many times is it okay after which it becomes just yeah. know, too much?
1: I think that asking every day, asking every time they're going out, asking when they're going to parties or just randomly watching TV and showing you a bio data, all of that is unacceptable. Caring about it, being concerned about it, acceptable. Set some time to talk about it. Maybe yeah. over dinner, right? Not when you're watching a movie. Right. Not when you're going to a shoddy, like a wedding. Or being passive-aggressive about it. Super passive-aggressive. Right? Oh, this pro- like, you know, like you share the friends getting married and the mom will hit with like, I guess everyone's getting married <laughs> and then they just look at you, right? Like that kind of stuff, unacceptable. Okay. You can comfortably be like, hey, like I noticed you're not dating. You're not getting married. Like, are you concerned? How can we fix this? This weekend, I want to show you some bio data. I can't right. even think of an, what is it. profile dating profiles. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) In the
0: end, is our unconditional love and boundary setting mutually exclusive?
1: No, because healthy boundaries help you achieve healthy love. Unconditional love is not always healthy love. I'll give you a quick example. So you're a parent, you have a child in grade six, they're struggling with math homework, right? And they're really failing. You love them, you see them hurting, so you start doing their homework for them. That's unconditional love because you don't want them to be embarrassed or ashamed or whatever. But that can enable a bad result for your kid. They're not gonna learn. They're gonna learn that somebody else will always pick up slack for me or they'll stay behind in their own learning. So sometimes unconditional love can enable negative consequences. But a healthy love is like, okay, you're struggling. Let's learn this together. I'm going to sit with you. I'll get you a tutor. We're going to figure this out. We're going to get you tested for some kind of math disability. That's healthy love. I'm not a love expert. I just want to say this is my perspective. <laughs> I, I
0: love, I, this is probably one of my all-time favorite conversations. Yeah. <laughs> I am so glad you we were able to do this. In the end, if you were to define America oh my gosh. in a word, sentence, phrase, in the context of all that
1: we've talked about? How would you define it? Uh, I think America is chaos. And in chaos, you can build new things. That's the only way you build ah. new things is by breaking them. But there's also a lot of downside to it. There's a lot of pain and turbulence and confusion. And I think that's why people are attracted to this country. They know there's ah. possibility for opportunity and success, but there is huge disadvantages without going into too much of the politics, the gun laws, the woman's right, the health, ah. all that stuff. So
0: love it, that's love the it, first love word it. that comes
1: to my mind. <laughs> Isra, where can people find you? So I'm on Instagram at well.guide and my website, which is Isranaser.com, And we'll write this all out in the blurb. My DMs are always open. I love chatting with people about this stuff. As you know, I have a lot of thoughts and a lot of thoughts. Listeners, <laughs> is reach out to Isra. You
0: will not regret it. This was so much fun. I will say this. I have a therapist and I Yay. love her, but I had so much fun here. you. And I am so glad that we had this conversation because a lot of stuff that you said really validated a lot of thoughts that Mm -hmm. I had. Mm -hmm. And that seldom happens (laughs) because I grew up in a different culture and sometimes it's difficult. So thank you for doing that.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. I think the work that you're doing with this podcast, I mean, I've been following you since 2020. I love it. I think it's so important to create spaces for these kind of experiences. Thank you, Isha. Wow, what
0: an interesting conversation. I was definitely more vulnerable and honest than I've been previously on my show. Sitting down with Isra was like having my personal therapy session. I hope all of you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you have any questions, if you have any thoughts to share, you can always write to us at info at immigrantlypod.com. You can also DM us. If you're not following us on our socials, our Instagram is at immigrantlypod. Our Twitter is immigrantly underscore pod. And please, if these conversations resonate with you, if you want to listen to more conversations on immigrantly, different conversations on immigrantly. Write us a nice review. Say something sweet. Maybe a five-star review would do, right? This episode was produced by me, Sadia Khan. Written by me and Zia Jaffrey. Editorial review by Yudi Liu, and our editor is Manny Simone. I am going to leave you guys with a sweet review that someone wrote for us. Here we go. Sunday 13579 wrote, I love this podcast. I am so glad I discovered it because now I am hooked. I've learned so much about immigrants and the immigrant experience, which is so nuanced and complex. Sadia is a lovely host and asks the real and difficult questions. Highly recommend Thank you so much for this review and guys, don't forget to write us something sweet.